Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi. Wisani Matebula and Figilelingwati. In our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shine at the Sawa, US President-elect Donald Trump denies Russian accusations. Gender equality important in times of crisis, says the UN, and increased use of tobacco in Africa could lead to a time bomb of health-related problems. In sports news, former Bafana Bafana striker Sean Bartlett says it's difficult to predict who will win the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Onil and Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Kenyan opposition political parties have announced an alliance to fight the August presidential and parliamentary elections against President Uhuru Kenyatta's coalition. The coalition dubbed the National Super Alliance is currently made up of 15 opposition political parties. It will front a single candidate against Kenyatta who is seeking a second and final term. Some of the key members of the National Super Alliance include former Prime Minister Rayla Odinga, former Vice President Kalonzo Musyoka and Foreign Affairs Minister Moses Wetangula. Kenya goes to the polls on August 8th to choose a president as well as members of parliament and the county assemblies. Sarah Kimani reports. Kenya will hold its general elections in August this year. The presidential ballot will be a hotly contested battle between incumbent President Uhuru Kenyatta Sasa mutakubali tuingie mwaka wa 2017 to a second and final term against the opposition. The opposition is currently working on a more united front led by former Prime Minister Raila Odinga of the Coalition for Reforms and Democracy called. Last year, Code held protests to demand the ouster of the Electoral Commission claiming it could not be trusted to hold a free and fair election. African Editors Forum, the biggest journalist body on the continent, has condemned the continued arrest of journalists and editors in Botswana. As South Africa is taunted as the regional political powerhouse, calls have been made from Botswana for assistance. This follows the arrest of a prominent Sunday newspaper journalist in Botswana for sedition and transgression that is equal to treason. His arrest is the third in three years, with a senior journalist from the same publication having fled the country and sought asylum in South Africa. Chairperson for African Editors Forum, Jovial Randau, says a broad democratic free press must be realized in Botswana. Has been con- concerned for quite a while by the arrest of, of journalists, the arrest of editors, simply for uh, what they have published. We condemn the acti- activities of the government of Botswana and believe that if anyone is unhappy with the content of any publication, to be to be resolved in in amicable way. Force the government to remove uh, from the statute books laws that are, in, um, are not promoting media freedom. 
An Egyptian court has upheld an earlier ruling to freeze the assets of three prominent rights activists, the latest chapter in a widening government crackdown against civil society groups. Wednesday's verdict targeted two Arab organizations for criminal reform, the freezing of their assets, and those of five other rights campaigners in September last year was part of a wider case against at least 12 rights groups that dates back to 2011, but which was revived in 2015. The eight face allegations that they, elite, that they illegally obtained foreign funds subsequently used to dis- destabilize Egypt, where authorities have since 2013 killed hundreds of Islamists and jailed thousands more. Cameroon says its military offensive against Boko Haram across the Nigerian border has made major progress with scores of jihadists killed and hundreds of hostages freed since December last year. Cameroonian troops have in recent weeks killed some 100 Boko Haram fighters and freed hundreds of hostages held by the group. Boko Haram's brutal insurgency launched in northern Nigeria in 2009 has spread across the border to Cameroon, Chad and Niger. At least 20,000 people have been killed and some 2.6 million people displaced in violence. Lastly, Mozambique's capital will only get piped water every other day from this week. Authorities in Maputo are battling the worsening drought-induced shortages. According to Maputo's regional water company, Adam, the tight new regulations, which kicked in on Tuesday, have been forced on them as a result of a two-year drought. Water levels in the Umbeluzi River and Maputo's main dam are understood to be very low, although heavy rains have been recorded in parts of southern Mozambique in recent weeks. Channel African News, I am Onelintzinzi. Thank you, Onele. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. U.S. President-elect Donald Trump has attacked the U.S. intelligence agencies, suggesting they may have been behind the leak of allegations that Russia gathered compromising material on him. He's also accused the media of publishing fake news. Trump says there is a plan in place to repeal and replace Barack Obama's affordable health care program, Obamacare. He has also reiterated his intention to build a wall on the Mexican border. Trump was holding his first formal media conference since he was elected. It's very familiar territory, news conferences, because we used to give them on a almost daily basis. I think we probably maybe won the nomination because of news conferences. And uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, We stopped giving them because we're getting quite a bit of inaccurate news. But I do have to say that, uh, and I must say that I want to thank a lot of the news organization because they looked at that nonsense that was released by maybe the intelligence agencies who knows but maybe the intelligence agencies which would be a tremendous blot on their record if they in fact did that a tremendous blot because a thing like that should have never been written it should never been had and it should certainly never have been released but i want to thank a lot of the news organizations for some of whom have not treated me very well over the years 
uh, a couple in particular, and they came out so strongly against that fake news and the fact that it was written about by primarily one group and one television station. So I just want to uh, compliment many of the people in the room. I have great respect for the news and great respect for freedom of the press and all of that. But I will tell you, there were some news organizations, uh, with all that was just said, that were so professional, so incredibly professional, that I've just gone up a notch as to what I think of you. Okay? All right. Uh, we've had some great news over the last... Uh, couple of weeks. I've been quite active, uh, I guess you could say, in an economic way for the country. Uh, a lot of car companies are going to be moving in. We have other companies. Big news is going to be announced over the next couple of weeks about companies that are going to be building in the Midwest. You saw yesterday Fiat Chrysler, big, big factory going to be built in this country as opposed to another country. Uh, Ford just announced that they stopped plans for a billion-dollar plant in Mexico, and they're going to be moving into Michigan and expanding very substantially a, an existing plant. I appreciate that from Ford. I appreciate it very much from Fiat Chrysler. Uh, I hope that General Motors will be following, and uh, I think they will be. I think a lot of people will be following. I think a lot of industries uh, are going to be coming back. We have to get our drug industry coming back. Our drug industry has been disastrous. They're leaving left and right. They supply our drugs, but they don't make them here to a large extent. And the other thing we have to do is create new bidding procedures for the drug industry because uh, they're getting away with murder. Uh, pharma. Pharma has a lot of lobbies, a lot of lobbyists, and a lot of power. And there's very little bidding on drugs. We're the largest buyer of drugs in the world, and yet we don't bid properly. And we're going to start bidding, and we're going to save billions of dollars over a period of time. And we're going to do that with a lot of other industries. Uh, I'm very much involved with the generals and admirals on the airplane, the F-35. You've been reading about it. And it's way, way behind schedule and many, many billions of dollars over budget. Uh, I don't like that. And the admirals have been fantastic. The generals have been fantastic. I've really gotten to know them well. And we're going to do some big things on the F-35 program and perhaps uh, the F-18 program. And we're going to get those costs way down. And we're going to get the plane to be even better. And we're going to have some competition, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. So we've been very, very much involved. And other things. Uh, we had uh, Jack Ma. We had so many incredible people coming here. Mr. Arnaud. Uh, they're going to do... Tremendous things, tremendous things in this country, and they're very excited. And I will say, if the election didn't turn out the way it turned out, they would not be here. They would not be in my office. They would not be in anybody else's office. They'd be building and doing things in other countries. So there's a great spirit going on right now, a spirit that many people have told me they've never seen before, ever. We're going to create jobs. I said that I will be the greatest jobs producer that God ever created. And I mean that. I really, I'm going to work very hard on that. Uh, we need certain amounts of other things, including a little bit of luck. But I think we're going to do a real job. And I'm very proud of what we've done. And we haven't even gotten there yet. I look very much forward to the inauguration. It's going to be a, a beautiful event. I have no deals in Russia. 
I have no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. Uh, and I have no loans with Russia. As a real estate developer, I have very, very little debt. I have assets that are, and now people have found out how big the company is. I have very little debt, I have very low debt. But I have no loans with Russia at all. Uh, and I thought that was important to put out. I certify that. So I have no deals, I have no loans, and I have no dealings. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. So I have no loans, no dealings, and no current pending deals. Now, I have to say one other thing. Over the weekend, I was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai with a very, very, very amazing man, a great, great developer from the Middle East, Hussein Demak, a friend of mine, great guy, and was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai, number of deals. And I turned it down. I didn't have to turn it down, because as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president, which is, I didn't know about that until about three months ago, but it's a nice thing to have, but I don't want to take advantage of something. And that was U.S. President-elect Donald Trump ending that report. Kenya's opposition parties have unveiled a coalition to face off with President Uhuru Kenyatta during the country's general election due in August this year. The coalition, dubbed the National Super Alliance, currently made up of 15 opposition political parties, will front a single candidate against Kenyatta, who is seeking a second and final term. Some of the key members of the coalition include former Prime Minister Reila Odinga, former Vice President Kalonzo Musio, and Foreign Affairs Minister Moses Wetangula. Kenya goes to the polls on August 8th to choose a president as well as members of parliament and the country and the county assemblies. Sarah Kimani has more. With just months to Kenya's high-stakes election, the opposition is seeking a united front against the ruling coalition, the Jubilee Party, led by President Uhuru Kenyatta. Thousands of opposition supporters were on hand to witness the unveiling of the opposition coalition. Former Prime Minister Raila Odinga gave the keynote speech. We are also here to emphasize that we are one opposition team with the common dream of liberating Kenyans from the yoke of Jubilee. Former Finance Minister Musalia Mudabadi told the supporters that Kenya was ready for a change in leadership. Should our presence here signify nothing, it must signify something. It must signify change for the people of Kenya. It must signify unity for the people of Kenya. It must signify the end to corruption. It must signify the solidarity and entrenchment of devolution. It must signify the opportunity to create jobs for the young men and women of this country. Various opinion polls have put President Kenyatta ahead of former Prime Minister Raila Odinga, the favorite to lead the opposition coalition. A strong alliance, the party leaders argue, can edge out Kenyatta. James Orengo is an opposition senator. We are the people! We are the people! We are the people! People and the vote took 
Nelson Mandela from prison to become the president of the Republic of South Africa. On the newly signed amendments to the electoral law requiring backup of the electronic system, the opposition says the Kenyan government is planning to rig the polls. They said they may resort to mass action in 30 days if President Kenyatta does not vacate the law. Moses Wetangula is an opposition senator. We shall not allow them. We shall not allow them. The real test for the opposition unity will come after one of them is chosen to lead the coalition to the ballot. Kalonzo Msioka, former vice president, is one of those eyeing the top job. Therefore, if he's going to negotiate, whoever is going to be the flag bearer will put everything on the table. Everything on the table. I have sacrificed before. I'm ready to sacrifice again. Coalition settled for former Prime Minister Raila Odinga, then it will be his fourth time to seek the presidency. In 2002, President Kenyatta lost to an opposition coalition led by retired President Mwai Kibaki. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kulitra Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. The UN Security Council has been urged to continue calling for the swift endorsement of a recent political agreement in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The appeal was made by UN Peacekeeping Chief Evre Latsu, who has updated members on political and security developments in the country. Government and opposition groups had signed an agreement in late December related to the electoral process. Diane Penn has more. The crisis stems from President Joseph Kabila's decision to remain in power beyond the end of his second and final mandated term. Under the agreement, he will leave office after elections, which will be held no later than December of this year. Speaking through an interpreter, Mr. Ladsu said the 31 December accord came at a critical time in the DRC, one of rising political tension and violence in some parts of the country. It should also be highlighted that now the uh, horizons opens for elections finally. Now for these to take place in December 2017, um, political, financial, technical and logistical support will be needed on a large scale. 
any delays in establishing the um, electoral roster and the establishment of the transition government and implementing the 31st of December agreement all could have a negative impact on the timetable. So everything must be done to ensure that the electoral process um, is not subject to any delays. The agreement was signed under the auspices of the Catholic Church. Monsignor Marcel Utembi, chair of the National Episcopal Conference of the Congo, spoke via video conference from the capital, Kinshasa. The political commitments agreed in Kinshasa provide for the establishment of a national council to oversee the agreement and the establishment of a broad government of national unity. And it is urgent that these bodies be actually implemented as soon as the agreed program is implemented in the near future. Meanwhile, the volatile security situation in the eastern DRC remains a concern. The activities of various militia groups are on the rise, coupled with the threat posed by armed groups out of Uganda, Rwanda, and now South Sudan. Ambassador Ignace Gatamavita Walafuta is the DRC representative to the United Nations. He spoke through an interpreter. The DRC cannot continue to be a haven for foreign armed groups. Neighboring countries must adopt policies that encourage the return of their nationals who are currently in DRC. This will alleviate tension, remove suspicion, and therefore lead to the trust in the region and the peace that we need in the eastern part of DRC. The ambassador expressed gratitude for UN efforts to preserve his country's sovereignty and to safeguard peace and stability. Diane Penn, United Nations. African Editors Forum, the biggest journalist body on the continent, has condemned the continued arrests of journalists and editors in Botswana. As South Africa is taunted as the regional political powerhouse calls have been made from Botswana for assistance. This follows the arrests of a prominent Sunday newspaper editor in that country for sedition, a transgression that is equal. To treason. His arrest is the third in three years with a senior journalist from the same publication having fled the country and seeking asylum in South Africa. Lucas Mutibedi reports. The South African government should flex its muscle on neighboring countries, particularly Botswana, to allow for a more greater media freedom. This is according to continental media bodies following the arrest of Otamukoni, an editor for a prominent Botswana Sunday newspaper. Oza was charged with the Section 51 of Botswana Sedition Act, which is equal to treason. He was previously arrested for the same offense, with the office being ransacked by police following the publication of another article. The journalist who carried the story, Edgar Zimani, who still faces arrest, fled the country for South Africa. The Botswana Editors Forum says at least nine journalists have been arrested since 2013 and several others have been harassed and intimidated. Chairperson Spencer Mohapi says the relationship between government and media in Botswana has collapsed. Ongoing harassment of the media by the state. There's a clear, clear pattern where journalists are continuously being harassed, being arrested on very timid ground. Uh, and this has led to self-censorship among the media, uh, where they are now literally afraid of doing what is supposed to be their public role. 
Independent Continental Media Body, Media Monitoring Africa, says the current status quo in Botswana has no place in the current democratic dispensation in the SADC region. William Bed for Media Monitoring Africa says South Africa, as a nation, has failed to use its influence on African countries to promote broader democracy, including freedom for journalists. Despite Botswana being a broadly democratic state, their media laws are certainly not in line with what we would like to see. One of the things we can do is, is demand from our government that they apply pressure to their respective counterparts in Botswana, the government to scrap the laws that they're using to do this. And South Africa is a, a central country to the region, and I think that for us not to be encouraging our, our neighboring countries to adopt greater levels of media freedom is, is and profoundly embarrassed by. In Botswana, several laws including Sedition Act, Media Practitioners Act and others prohibit journalists to publish articles that are seen to be projecting the state in a negative way. Chairperson for African Editors Forum, Jovial Randau, says they are gravely concerned. Concerned for quite a while by the arrest of journalists, the arrest of editors, simply for what they have published. We condemn the activities of the government of Botswana. The concerned media bodies say they will officially write to South African government for assistance. Meanwhile, the case against the accused editor, Ozamokoni, has been rolled over to the 26th of this month for hearing. He is currently out on bail. Efforts to solicit the comment from the Botswana government did not bear any fruit. Lucas Motibede reporting in Mahikeng in the northwest. South Sudan Catholic Church has decried the plight of South Sudanese living in internal and external refugee camps and want a government to help them as soon as possible. James Shimangula has more. The plight of South Sudan refugees living in internal and external refugee camps has been brought to light by leaders of the Catholic Church in the country. Archbishop Daniel Lokudu of South Sudan Catholic Church has just concluded visits to South Sudanese displaced inside the country and to get a clear picture of the Sudanese situation, he traveled to Uganda where thousands of South Sudanese are living in refugee camps. Archbishop Lokudu of South Sudan Catholic Church had a strong message to the government of President Salva Kiir in Jubal. Our government in the country does not seem to be aware of what really is going on about the consequences of our situation inside. The consequences of what we are calling now as war in South Sudan, as problems of South Sudan. What, what consequences are these problems of our South Sudan producing on the people? The refugees living in internal and external refugee camps were forced to flee their homes due to the ongoing fighting, pitting fighters of former Vice President Riek Machar and the troops loyal to President Salva Kiir. While in Uganda, the Sudanese Catholic Church leader, Archbishop Daniel Lokudu, visited refugee camps accommodating South Sudanese. He says most of the Sudanese are afraid to return home fearing to be killed in the ongoing conflict. You can see the life of the people is good. They are okay, but the deep sense of peaceful living is not there. The people are not very sincerely, honestly, and deeply happy because we are still hearing that there are here and there, I think, some killings. And I think this, we must be very honest to ourselves, there are still killings going on, individuals and whatever it is, robbing and robbing, especially robbing of properties. 
And in that case, I think robbing, they kill people. Archbishop Daniel Lokudu of South Sudan Catholic Church wants the government of President Salva Kiir in Juba to send emissaries to refugee camps to witness the plight of the refugees there. Let us begin now to see really what is going on, what consequences of our difficult situation, of our insecurity. What are the consequences? What are the really the precautions of this? I think this is what I would advise, be it to the leadership of our country as well as the leadership of the church. We need to make visits, official visits to these places, see and learn and come and do something about it. South Sudan Catholic Church leader Archbishop Daniel Lokudu squarely blames President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent Riek Machar for failing to stop the ongoing fighting that continues to force hundreds of South Sudanese to flee the country. We have to be serious now about peace. By all means, as the church is always in, uh, advocating and calling for, stop violence, stop killing, stop guns, and whatever is to become to be done is this dialogue, this peace talking. That was Archbishop Daniel Lokudu of the Catholic Church in South Sudan shedding light on the plight of South Sudanese living in internal and external refugee camps. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Onelen Zinzi. Kenyan opposition political parties form an alliance to fight the August presidential and parliamentary elections against President Uhuru Kenyatta's coalition. African Editors Forum, the biggest journalist body on the continent, condemns the continued arrest of journalists and editors in Botswana. And the UN Security Council has been urged to continue calling for the swift endorsement of a recent political agreement in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Onele. In a world beset by crisis and disasters, women and girls are far more vulnerable than their male counterparts. That's according to UN Women's Humanitarian Coordinator and Deputy Director Program, Daniel Seymour. 
Women and girls are 2.5 times more likely to be out of school and far more likely to lose their jobs. The UN agency is working to empower women to be more resilient in responding to a crisis. Andita Listerini asked Seymour why promoting gender equality is important in times of crisis, especially when people mostly focus on basic humanitarian assistance. Crises impact men and women, boys and girls, differently. So I think people are familiar with the idea, for example, of vulnerability to sexual exploitation or trafficking and so on. But actually, as you look across all of the indicators, everything we measure, every way we try to figure out what the impact of a crisis has been on people, we see that women and girls come off worst. So they're two and a half times more likely to be out of school, uh, for example, or far more likely to have lost jobs or employment. Every way across, you see there's greater vulnerability. But also, women and girls have this incredible capacity to support and protect their families and their communities. Just like in all other areas of life, it's, it's women who really take the lead in looking after their families and particularly their children, who are also among the most vulnerable in a crisis. Can you give some examples of concrete humanitarian work that UN Women has done to empower these women that you mentioned? UN Women's role in, in emergencies and crises is to find the best ways that we can really support the overall UN response. The first thing we do is that we make sure that everybody who's taking part in responding to a crisis has the information and the understanding they need of what is it about this crisis, this emergency, that's special for women and girls, both in terms of their vulnerabilities but also the contribution that they can make. Um, so, for example, in the response to Ebola, we did a, a study together with Oxfam that really showed the ways in which um, women and girls were vulnerable to infection, but also the opportunities that women and girls had to help prevent further infection and to, to, to help the country recover. Second thing we do is uh, we, we call it localization, but it's, it's a, basically what it means is we support women's organizations and things like women's ministries in government to be really active uh, and play a full part in the response to an emergency. Um, so, uh, for example, in Nepal, after the earthquake, we were working very closely with the, the women's ministry, also with women's organizations, so that they could really be active in, in, in shaping the response and the recovery uh, from, from the earthquake. Lastly... The final thing we do is we do have a service uh, that we provide um, where it's appropriate and in a form that's appropriate depending on the context. And these are essentially centers that women can go to to provide a whole range of services and support. Um, and one of the biggest things there is, is opportunities to earn an income uh, and to get training so that they can become resilient and look after themselves. How effective have your projects been? What we see uh, is, you know, again and again, these really, I think, deeply inspiring examples uh, of individual women who've gone through the centres uh, and have been able to earn money that they use to help their kids uh, get to school, to make sure they've got the food they need, to, to it's simple things like being able to afford blankets because it's cold at night, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and 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 and, but also not just women you know, as mothers and carers, but actually young women, you know, 13, 14-year-old girls who are going and, and really taking, seizing an opportunity. You'll see the opportunity uh, that was given to, to a, a couple of twin sisters uh, who learned how to fix uh, mobile phones as a, as a profession. You know? And this is genuinely life-changing. These are girls who, frankly, they, they would probably have been married off very young, 
not because you know, their families think that's great per se, but because the families don't see for them any alternative opportunity for how they're going to be safe and protected and, and you know, look after themselves. Last question. UN Women is not technically a UN agency that deals with humanitarian assistance. And how is the future of UN Women's programs in emergencies and humanitarian crises? You know, what we do is not super cash intensive. Um, and we don't ever imagine, um, you know, a world where you have, you know, UN Women Land Rovers driving around uh, and UN Women planes, you know, snow dropping pallets of stuff out the back. Um, what we do imagine is a situation where, uh, and, and, you know, our, our ambition to, to get to, and we feel we're on the way there, is that any time there's a crisis or an emergency, you can depend on UN Women to make sure that four things are in place. And there are those four things I said before, that the assessment is there, people understand the gender dimensions of this crisis, that the capacity is there, the support is there for local, whether it's government or non-government actors, local women, local women's organizations to play their fullest part, that the coordination systems and mechanisms have that gender expertise in place uh, to make sure that they're taking the situation, the capacities and the opportunities of women and girls into account, and that those services are there, those, you know, whether it's the OACs, the House for Women, whatever you call it, but those resilience hubs, those resilience centers are there that women can go to to access all of those opportunities. That was UN Women's Humanitarian Coordinator and Deputy Director Program Daniel Seymour speaking to UN Radio's Andita Listiarini. Violence and insecurity in Iraq have caused children and teenagers serious psychological problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder and extreme anxiety. As according to Abdullah Wahed, Abdullah, a psychologist at Terre d'Homme, a United Nations Children's Fund partner organization that deals with child migration. More than 3 million people are currently displaced across Iraq, including 130,000 people who have fled Mosul since the military offensive to retake the city began in October 2016. Andita Listerini has a story of 11-year-old Ahmed, who was traumatized after seeing his father beheaded by terrorist group ISIL. Ahmed is playing foosball with friends he makes at the youth center in a camp for displaced people in Erbil, Iraq. He fills his day with playing chess, drawing and learning English in the hopes that he can recuperate from the trauma of losing his father. Ahmed told UNICEF the day ISIL terrorists came to his hometown in northern Iraq and took his father's life, who was the police officer. When ISIL first arrived, they asked us to take them to the police officers in town so they could pay them their salaries. I believe they were telling the truth, so I took them to my father. When we arrived, they beheaded him. Next, they went to our village and started arresting, lashing, and beheading more people. Ahmed is now an orphan. His mother stayed with him until he turned seven and left him when she got remarried. He is one out of 300 boys who have received assistance at the youth center since it opened in the summer of 2016. Here's Abdul Wahed Abdullah, a psychologist at the center. The young men here at the center suffer from many psychological problems. For instance, many of them suffer from PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of them struggle with incontinence, 
and many of them experience extreme anxiety and sleep disorders. Ahmed is determined to go back to school. If anything, the tragic loss of his father does not stop him from dreaming about the future. When I graduate, I will become a policeman. My father was a policeman, and I would like to be one too. Across Iraq, nearly 5 million children have been directly affected by the conflict and 3.5 million children are out of school. This youth center is one small but important safe haven for those who want to heal, study, and look to the future. Andita Lisiarini, United Nations. The increased use of tobacco in Africa could lead to a time bomb of health-related problems, according to the World Health Organization. WHO has recently published the Economics of Tobacco and Tobacco Control Report, which shows that while the global consumption of tobacco is declining in Africa, the reverse is happening. The UN's Daniel Dickinson was speaking to Evan Bletcher, an economist with the WHO in Geneva. What we're really seeing in Africa right now is an increase in in tobacco use. Traditionally, we've seen tobacco use in Africa lower than in most other regions in the world. As we're seeing that tobacco use is falling in the developed world and even starting to fall in some places in the developing world, we're starting to see the slack then picking up in Africa, where the multinational uh, tobacco companies are starting to target African consumers far more aggressively. Presumably, it's about economic wealth, But why, when people have more money, do they start smoking? It's not a very sensible thing to do, is it? It's kind of interesting because it happens differently at different stages of an epidemic, in a way. Um, What we see in the developed world, as people become uh, more educated, uh, richer, so to speak, uh, we start seeing their probability of becoming smokers decline. Their knowledge of the health consequences of smoking and probably wanting a healthier lifestyle starts to increase. But You know, when we look at the developing world, and particularly the low-income countries, it's kind of the opposite. As people urbanize, as they become wealthier, they're starting to smoke more. Part of that's also linked to, to tobacco advertising, marketing, and sponsorship. In the developed world, the ability of the companies to brand their products as being aspirational, which are being linked to that growing incomes and higher education, uh, is no longer possible because we don't see advertising, sponsorship, promotion, marketing of, of tobacco products. In many African countries, we, we don't quite have these policies in place yet. And the result is that tobacco companies are still able to uh, use aggressive marketing tactics. What are the health implications looking ahead? Are, are we looking at a, a time bomb? In a way, we are. On one side, you know, we look at the typical smoking-related diseases. Typically, those are cancer, cardiovascular disease, and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. What we're seeing is as African populations are healthier than they've ever been, we look at child mortality rates in Africa are as low as they've ever been, and life expectancy is rising, often because we've had great successes in infectious diseases and dealing with HIV and AIDS and hopefully going forward with malaria. As those populations start living longer, so they're going to have greater lengths of exposures to tobacco smoke and thus have greater probabilities of contracting those diseases. The other side of it is that the health systems, which are already overburdened with infectious diseases like HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, aren't in the position to be able to treat those diseases. So we're seeing the sort of time bomb in terms of the increased diseases because of increased tobacco use, the increased disease burden because of longer life expectancy because of other successes in an environment where health systems are already overstretched. We don't have the resources in these countries 
to then deal with the massive time bomb of tobacco-related diseases. So it doesn't sound as though uh, countries in Africa are at all prepared for what's uh, going to happen. They're underprepared to some extent, but at the same time, where Africa does have an advantage is that we have the tools ready through a generation or two generations of experience with the developed world. Uh, We have the tools, the policy tools available to implement it in African countries to prevent an epidemic. In the developed world, we had to intervene and we had to reverse an epidemic. Smoking rates in African countries are still low enough that if we make successful interventions now, we're going to be able to prevent that. We know how to do it, we know what to do, and we are already doing it. I think we're already seeing great strides in Africa in implementing tobacco control policies. We've seen some fantastic successes already in all parts of the continent. And obviously uh, the governments of the tobacco-producing countries in Africa probably think it's quite a good thing. They're making lots of money from this. Yes, and it really is challenging. There are a number of countries in Africa that are significant tobacco producers. Some of these economies are are very dependent on tobacco growing as a source of revenues, a source of foreign currency through exports. Um, So those countries are looking at this and they're looking at it with trepidation because significant reduction in, in tobacco use is going to affect their bottom line. But the reality is the global demand for tobacco use is declining. While African tobacco usage is increasing, Africa isn't big enough and it can never increase at a large enough level to offset the declines in tobacco use we see in other parts of the world. And that was Evan Bletcher, an economist with the WHO in Geneva, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Wissani Matabula. Good morning, Lulu. DRC's Mines Minister says it will impose a transfer of ownership in the country's biggest uh, copper and cobalt producer, marking a departure from previous actions to block or tax changes in shareholding structures. Glencoe is considering increasing its 69% stake in the Mutanda mining project. The rest is owned by Israeli billionaire Dan Gatla's Flore Group. Glencoe and Gatla began investing in mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo almost a decade ago and now jointly own 100% of Mutanda, despite a provision in Congo's mining code that usually awards the government a 5% non-contributing stake. The companies have invested 1.8 billion US dollars in the mine. Kenya has raised a billion US dollars uh, through syndicated loans as East Africa's biggest economy seeks to plug a widening budget deficit. The Treasury says PTA Bank, which is an East African trade finance lender based in Burundi, has already disbursed $100 million, while a further $150 million will be received shortly. The Kenyan government outlined plans in uh, last year's budget to raise $1.5 billion from external sources in the fiscal year through to June. South Africa, the continent's largest producer of maize, could return to being a net exporter of maize in the next marketing year if the current rains continue in the next few terms. Agri-SA Chief Economist Hamlet Lomendlini explains. The drought has actually brought some very, very devastating effect on the sector, especially on the maize belt. We saw ourselves for the first time being the net importer of maize, which is something that country is very, very unfamiliar with. But the good prospects of rain 
that has come since October last year and up until now are on the phase of kind of like changing that. We've seen that, like you mentioned earlier, that in the free state area, for instance, and in some areas that are producing maize in South Africa, because of good rains that have fallen, production of maize and other grains has actually taken place already now, and some crops have started showing off the ground already. Nigeria Union of Petroleum and Natural Gas Workers have suspended a nationwide strike over job losses that hit petrol stations and oil tankers following talks with government. Labor unions have criticized oil companies for seeking workers in the last few months. Nigeria has been hit hard by a slump in crude oil prices in the past two years. This pushed the country into a recession. The former regional heads of Africa at private equity giants KKR and Khalil are setting up an investment firm, Arcana Partners, to target local equity investments of up to 100 million US dollars. Private equity opportunities in Africa are often seen as uh, too small for the buyout industry's titans. The new firm will look for ventures which are ready to absorb up to $100 million but will mostly focus on opportunities requiring between $20 and $60 million of equity. Financial indicators now. The dollar is at 13.75 South African rands at 10.59 with Zwana Buda and 10.09 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.822 the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,187. Platinum $978 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil at $54.51 per barrel. That's your economics news for now. Thank you, Wisani. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. Wilfred Zaha was among the scorers as African Nations Cup holders Ivory Coast produced a dominant display to beat Uganda 3-0 last night in a final warm-up before they begin their title defence. Aston Villa striker Jonathan Kojia opened the scoring five minutes into the second half in Abu Dhabi with a back post header from Zaha's cross. The Crystal Palace winger added a second eight minutes later as he beat the offside trap to fire in front the right. It was Zaha's first goal in his second cap for the Ivorians since switching his international allegiance from England. The Ivorians wrapped up victory when Paris Saint-Germain fullback Serge Aurier powered home a header from distance in the 72nd minute. Uganda's opening game in Group D is against Ghana in Port Gentil on Tuesday. In cricket news, Proteus opening batsman Stephen Cook has acknowledged batsman and team stalwart Hashim Amla's cricketing prowess but believes what stands out about him is the fantastic person he is. I grew up playing school cricket against him. I mean, he played for DHS, I played for, for King Edwards, and um, I've always known him as a great player and a fantastic person. I think that's the, that's the most important thing. I mean, you can look, at, look up stats and, and see all the records in the hundreds, and yes, that tells one half of the tale, but the person he is, um, you know, that's, 
that's probably more important. I mean, I, I always say you, you're a person, a human being first, and then a cricketer second, and he epitomizes that. And uh, it's been great to share various dressings, dressing rooms with him, from, from him captaining me under 19 to, to playing test cricket with him from 15 years later, you know. Uh, and uh, on my debut, got to, to bat with him for a long period of time. And, you know, he's, he's so welcoming and such a, such a voice of calm around things, you know, when, when, when situations are tricky or uh, even when people need, just need to be grounded a little bit. He's, he's the voice of reason and, uh, you know, he brings a lot of confidence to the group. I mean, you know, like... I spoke a little bit about it in Australia, but although he didn't score many runs in Australia, the, the impact he had on the other guys performing was immense. His experience on the wickets, on how to deal with the Australians, with, with the variety of, of the difficulties, you know, it was a big help to guys like myself. And, you know, uh, he plays a vital role in the side, whether, you know, whether he scores 0 to 100, he's, he almost is one of those guys, he, he starts on 30, because he's added 30 <laughs> runs before, before he's even walked out to bat. He's added 30 runs in value uh, by his experience and, and, and the person he is. Proteas all-rounder Wayne Parnell says it will be a wonderful gesture from the team to celebrate Amla's 100th test appearance with a win against Sri Lanka and a series whitewash. Yeah, obviously Hashim with his 100th uh, test match, I mean his, his record speaks for itself. Um, he's been probably one of our sort of pillars um, over a long period of time. Um, so it, it will be firstly really nice for us to, to have him play Thursday. Um, and I think giving him a, a victory would, would also be really nice. And then obviously aiming for the, for the whitewash. I think we, we haven't had a, a whitewash for quite some time now. So that is obviously something that, that we would like to do. But having said that, it obviously starts at Nord for Nord on, on Thursday again. So, you know, Hashim's been amazing. And, you know, just his uh, presence through, um, through, throughout my international career, I've, he's, he's always been someone that, if I if I felt that things have gotten tough, um, I could always um, confide in him. Um, he's been like a like a brother to me on tour, um, and yeah, awesome team man. And I, I just want to wish him all the all the best with Thursday. Finally, with golf news, South Africa's oldest and most prestigious golf tournament, and also the world's second oldest Open Championship, the 106th. BMW SA Open Championship takes place from today until the 15th of January at the Glendower Golf Club Fairways, east of Johannesburg. The championships will be graced by the presence of Northern Irish professional golfer Rory McElroy. While all the eyes are on McElroy, double SA Open champion Rediv Khosen believes it may not be cut and dried as this. You know, I don't know how much Rory plays at altitude. It's sometimes quite difficult to judge somebody's holes how far the ball is going to go in a way i can probably see him over clubbing quite a bit on some of the holes that you know you can't believe how far the ball goes sometimes that's the spot news this hour Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, U.S. President-elect Donald Trump denies Russian accusations. Gender equality important in times of crisis, says the U.N. And increased use of tobacco in Africa could lead to a time bomb of health-related problems. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, 
Producer Ronald Peewee, technical producer Adrian Kinney and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is number one by Davido. Sweetie, sweetie 